0: While we were marching through Georgia everybody swing your honey swinger high and low The Alaman left for the old left hand around the ring you go A grand old right to left walk on your heel and toe Promenade an pretty gal to Georgia This is moving through Georgia and today we're going to talk about a train wreck that occurred about a mile south of Cornelia in 1912. On October 4th, 1912, a Southern Railways passenger train that was traveling south, this was train number 43, wrecked a mile below Cornelia at a spot called Hood Siding. And this happened at about 4:30 in the morning. The engine was demolished, and so were the mail and baggage cars. Uh, luckily, the passenger cars were not harmed at all. There were a few injuries and two deaths. Jacob Costner, the engineer, and the fireman, Ed Simpson, were both killed. The railroad company immediately suspected foul play. A train had passed over the same switch about 35 minutes before and another one about 45 minutes before without incident. So they felt that the problem couldn't be with the switch. Now, at the time, there was a railroad strike going on and there had been some problems In Augusta, a railroad inspector found a stick of dynamite on the tracks martial law was declared and all the saloons and pool rooms were closed for the duration of the investigation. A few days earlier a train had come into Atlanta with all the passengers lying on the floor. It seems that when they traveled through Buckhead some people sympathetic to the strikers had shot at the train. There was an investigation and eventually two names came up. They were Tom Tanksley and Ed Renfro. On the day of the wreck, Tom Tanksley was in the area. He had stolen a horse and was hiding temporarily in the Cornelia area. Eventually, he would sell that stolen horse in Dalton and would be arrested. Now, some railroad investigators claim that when he was arrested, Tanksley confessed to being there when the switch was thrown that would cause the wreck. A few days later, however, he told reporters that he knew nothing about the incident with the train and just happened to be in the area with his stolen horse. He was taken to Clarksville, where he testified to the grand jury that was looking into the train wreck. And at that time, he gave up the name of Edward Renfro. Exactly where he got that name, I'm not sure. It's possible that someone asked him about Renfro and he confirmed that he was in on it. Renfro had previously been questioned about the accident, but he wasn't arrested until Tanksley's testimony pointed to him. It's very possible that Tanksley was led to this by the investigators. Well, who was Edward Renfro? He was, in fact, a very good friend of the dead engineer. Before Costner was married, he had roomed with Renfro in Greenville, South Carolina. At the time, Renfro was injured in a railroad accident and couldn't find work, so when Costner got married and moved to Atlanta with his wife Minnie, he invited Renfro to come live with them. He gave him some carpentry work until Renfro eventually uh, obtained a job as a switch operator for the Southern Railroad. Costner's wife was quick to tell anyone who would listen that Costner and Renfro were very good friends, and she felt that the railroad was deflecting responsibility for the accident. And in the course of the investigation, the Southern Railroad utilized a little bit of gossip. Stories began to spread about Costner's wife and Renfro, and people began to talk about a possible conspiracy to get rid of Minnie Costner's husband. Mrs. Costner, of course, denied everything and said that the railroad was using this gossip to try to pin some blame on her to avoid a lawsuit that she had filed against the railroad for the death of her husband. One supposed piece of evidence came from another Southern Railroad engineer. He sat up with the body in the Costner's home before the burial and claimed that Renfro was in the home but would not enter the room in which the corpse was laid out. Mrs. Costner denied charges that she had been seen riding alone in an automobile with Edward Renfro. A few newspapers pointed out that Mrs. Costner also took delivery of a brand new automobile just a few days after her husband died. They publicly questioned exactly how grief-stricken the widow was. Minnie Costner responded by saying that the automobile had been ordered months before her husband's death and there was no point in not having the car picked up. In an unusual move, in 1913, the Habersham Grand Jury voted to charge Renfro and Tangsley with Costner's murder, not for wrecking the train. You may recall, though, that two people had died in the accident. The fireman, who also died in the accident and who was black, was never mentioned once in the proceedings. The trial was held in the Habersham County Courthouse in Clarksville. Minnie Costner was there prepared to take the stand to defend herself against charges that she and Renfro had conspired to kill her husband. This turned out to not be necessary because Renfro was acquitted of the charge of murder. Mrs. Costner took to the papers to say that the verdict cleared her name as well and definitely put to rest any thought of an affair or a conspiracy. Immediately after the conclusion of the trial, Renfro was arrested again, this time for the death of the fireman. The paper points out that Miss Costner laughed at the idea of him being put on trial for the death of the fireman and nothing really came of it. Renfro was allowed to post bond, and he was released. The Southern Railroad eventually determined that the accident was due to a defective switch and bad roadbed. Renfro never faced any more charges. And that left Tom Tangsley, whose testimony had gotten Renfro into all of this in the first place. Well, it turns out his testimony never really carried any weight. After testifying in Renfro's trial, he was taken back to Murray County, where he faced charges of stealing that horse. This is Moving Through Georgia, a Georgia history podcast. If you like what you hear and want other people to hear these stories, please give us five stars on whatever podcast app you're listening on. It really does help bring us up the charts, and we need some stars. If you have any questions or comments, movingthroughgeorgia at gmail.com. This was an episode where I did most of my research going through old newspapers. Now, looking through old newspapers can be very distracting. It can be very hard to focus on what you're looking at because there is some unusual stuff out there. So, As a close, I'm going to share some of the minor distractions I came across while going through the newspapers looking for Renfro and Costner's story. When you are looking through the newspaper and you come across the headline, S.E. Carter Weds Vote Dozier to Get Even for Flogging, I mean, how could you not take a minute and read it? Well, Essie Carter, who lived in Macon, Georgia, declared in August of 1912 that she had two reasons for marrying Vogt Dozier. That first name is spelled either V-O-G-H-T or V-O-G-T, it's different throughout the article. One reason was that they were in love, and the other is that she wanted to get even with his father for whipping her in July. Of course, violence against women is wrong, especially for the reasons in this article. Apparently, young Vogt announced to his father that he was infatuated with Essie Carter and intended to marry her. The father then traveled to Macon and beat the young girl. Despite the father's violence, Vogt and Essie did eventually obtain a marriage license and get married. And you think things are tense around your family's table at Thanksgiving? This is another article. It's short, so I'm just going to read it to you. Remember, this is 1912. New York. Edward Kane, a driver, drank a quart of whiskey, winning a bet, smiled, walked home, and then died. John Mann, who held the other end of the wager, has been arrested. I don't know what you could arrest him for besides gambling. I mean, I don't think you can arrest someone for incitement to drink a quart of whiskey. Okay, and try to keep in mind that this is all from the same page in the same paper, the Atlanta Georgian, from Tuesday, October 29th, 1912. The headline is, Wealthy Woman Now Learns She May Be Changeling, St. Louis. Mrs. Daisy R. Ogden, who for 31 years supposed that she was the daughter of wealthy Mr. and Mrs. Andy R., has learned through court testimony in her suit to obtain a share in the estate that she may be a changeling, the daughter of a servant in the R household. The woman, who Miss Ogden thinks may be her mother, appeared as a witness and told of the strange manner in which the baby had been found in the house the morning after Mrs. Ower's baby was supposed to have died. So apparently this wealthy couple, uh, their baby died, and the next day they just found a baby and raised it as their own. Um, Isn't that how the omen started? I really think I could do an entire episode just on this one page of the newspaper, but I'll close with one last story. This is Texarkana, Texas. The Bowie County Court, upon the verdict of a jury, has ordered the Texas and Pacific Railroad Company to pay damages in the amount of $1,000 to Mrs. G.W. Brewer because a brakeman in the road's employment squeezed her arm. The brakeman admitted the squeezing but claimed he had meant no offense and that he only wanted to be friendly. Mrs. Brewer is young and handsome. Everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low The Alaman left for the old left hand around the ring you go A grand old right to left walk on your heel and toe From an gal to Georgia, that's all